0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Core Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Sestari, and I'm glad you're joining us today as we're going to be continuing our journey on bringing awareness to the heat beneath our feet so we can power our future. And today is an episode that myself as a geologist, I'm excited about. And I know those out there who want to know a little bit more of the research side and just technical side behind truly what is geothermal, that today will be something that you should tune into And I'm pleased to announce that we have John Holbrook with us today, who is a professor at TCU University and has a storied history of research in geology and and working on stratigraphy and fluvial systems and also currently is also working on geothermal. And I'm excited to talk to him and just pick his brain on what he's doing in that space and also what he views as kind of the potential and, and the possibility in that realm. So Without any more waiting or lingering, uh, John, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. I'd love for you to just kind of give an intro to yourself for the audience and just kind of give a history of your background and how you, you know, chose to become a professor and what you've worked on, and then we'll segue into, obviously, what you're doing inside of the geothermal space.
1: Thanks, Nick. Uh, good to be here. Glad to have a chance to talk geothermal. It's always a fun thing to talk geothermal. As you said, uh, it's, it's an exciting opportunity, and it's, uh, it's, it, I'm looking at geothermal finally coming into its own in, in the upcoming years and months. Um, yeah, my name is John Holbrook, and uh, yes, as you probably gathered from the accent already, I'm, I am uh, from uh, Appalachia. And, uh, if you've ever listened to country music, you've heard this accent before. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I'm, uh, I, and so, uh, I kind of grew up in the country. And so I developed a natural attraction to the outdoors. And, uh, we were kind of subsistence farmers and, and, uh, and, and the like. And so off to college, I went at one point in time and geology sounded like a fun thing to give a try. Didn't know much about it, but I'm glad it worked out. So now I'm, uh, I've got through my degree and, uh, worked my way through, ended up being, uh, prof- ended up getting through all the way through a doctorate and found a job as a professor. And here I am. Um, my, uh, research has, uh, largely has always been, I should say, uh, in sedimentology stratigraphy in one form or another. I, uh, matter of fact, I tell my students, main reason I got into depositional systems and sedimentology and stratigraphy is because I liked everything in geology and couldn't figure out what to do. So I decided not, I decided to just do it all. So (laughs) uh, this particular discipline allows you to kind of venture out into absolutely every aspect of geology. So I've had a chance to work with earthquake hazards and dinosaur footprints and, uh, And climate change and all sorts of different areas of research. And, of course, a lot of that has been about the fundamental principles of what turns sedimentary systems into actual rock. And that has, of course, meant that it gave me a basic skill set that has been useful in petroleum and in environmental and, uh, of course, obviously, in this case, in geothermal. So as I jokingly always say, I'm fundamentally, when it comes to geothermal, I'm a plumber. So <laughs> yeah. I I have a particular aspect of the field that's my basic research is figuring out why fluids move from one place to another. That is one. But that's my sort of day job, hardcore research, turnout students. And they go work in different disciplines to do that kind of work, because the old saying is, "Everybody needs a plumber as long as water still flows downhill." So, but it is part of the geothermal story because clearly, with geothermal, what you're doing is you're pumping water in one place, sucking it out another place, or sometimes pumping it in one place and back out the same place. But either way, you're look, you know, what you've really got to know is the plumbing down there. That said, again, one small piece of the puzzle. You need geophysicists to understand heat flow. You need reservoir engineers. You need worlds of engineers who are working in rock mechanics and things like that. You need drillers. You need economists. You need social scientists. You need everything under the sun. So, uh, As far as how I got myself into geothermal, it was about 10 years ago, and uh, I was... I, you know, of course, my research has largely served the petroleum industry and the environmental industry. I actually, you, I, I do a large amount of work in the environmental industry. I was even on the uh, Missouri board of, uh, for uh, certification of state geologists, um, and so. <clears throat> uh, but that said, where geothermal came along is I've always had an interest in it. But what really tipped the scales was there was this one incidence where that. Uh, I saw one of these NSF calls go out. It was for this large program in sustainability. And I have seen these things fly across desks for my entire career. And they just simply fly across desks across the entire geologic community. And nobody stops to think, well, wait a minute, that's us. And so I thought to myself, this is one of those that we can't let this whole emphasis on sustainability simply slide by the profession. So that's when I had my opportunity in geothermal. I called up the people at NSF. I talked to some people and found out there was some enthusiasm there to actually bring geothermal into that broader sustainable energy category. So sustainable energy pathways was what was the real uh, focus of the interest. So solar, wind, you know biomass, whatever. But of course, obviously, to me, that included geothermal. And so I, I, I wrote. I got a bunch of people together. I immediately found out just how enthusiastic people were about this uh, ge- about geothermal in, in energy. Got a panel together. We wrote a grant. We got this got the funding for said heat. So in that case, what happened? Uh, we started this. I wrote this grant. We started this group. I started collecting up scientists. We got engineers. We got geothermal people. We got heat flow people. We got and of course, me as a sedimentologist, got education types. We got the whole mass together and then went out and started finding even more people. And Before we knew it, there were about 300 people in this network. Wow. And all looking at this same fundamental question. What is it going to take to make sedimentary geothermal a reality? And we worked for about seven years on that and said heat. And, uh, we, uh, we discussed things. We had meetings. We had panels. We had all kinds of things, wrote some papers. And in the end, we came up with some insights. And I like to think over the course of those years that geothermal has moved along considerably. And now we've come to a dawn of a time where that there's not it's not just us interested in sedimentary geothermal the industry is now interested in sedimentary geothermal too so hopefully we found that nexus and things move from here
0: yeah no i think that you know i it's been interesting in my own time researching it as well that geothermal kind of held flat for for a really long time it was basically just the conventional hydrothermal systems uh, that we know of or at least that you hear about which is usually related to hot water at the surface or the fun attractions of geysers and volcanoes that's what everybody thinks of when they think of geothermal or a hot water but it's been really cool and unique to see the push for the idea of geothermal everywhere and really making it a, a a thing that will not just be a localized energy source but truly something that can you know help create microgrids or even just help balance out the the regular grid in certain areas or just provide cleaner baseload power. And, you know, there's also direct use and there's just so many things that you can get into. And I think that's what, you know, education is obviously huge, like you said. And I think that's great that this group that you formed it kind of was the goal because in my mind, I think there's just kind of a general lack of education maybe in the public, in the just community, even in sometimes the energy community uh, from what I've seen is is geothermal's viewed as sort of a yeah it's cool uh it sounds interesting, but I don't really see it ever becoming you know anything more than what it is and and that that's reflected in all these energy demand forecasts for the next decade or more they they really you can't even see the color code for geothermal on there because they just don't either they don't believe in it yet uh, or they just aren't putting it in there um, but I really think it's poised for a huge breakthrough and and you already mentioned with the staff it basically is an oil and gas part 2 in terms of the the skill set and you know the problem solving uh, it's just looking at it in a different light um and honestly you saying as a plumber it's it's a good way to to relate it back that you're just trying to figure out how to make this system work um and get enough heat out of the ground uh, even in areas where maybe there's not already fluid down hole so I guess, you know, yeah. that's kind of the exciting piece. Uh, and, I you know, I want to kind of get more of your knowledge on the sedimentary basins in particular, in terms of, you know, what you think uh, are some of maybe the major challenges that we will face uh, when we're talking about maybe some of this, you know, the areas where there's not already a, a, you know, man-made upswelling of water or reservoir of water, and we're just targeting purely hot rock in the sedimentary basins, you know, what that well, that poses from both a geologic challenge, but also just a recovering the heat challenge.
1: Sure, and and you're absolutely right. There are a lot of opportunities in here, and a lot of what we were geared around was the idea of sedimentary basins, because most of the attention has gone to geothermal over the years past has gone one of two ways. It's either gone to, as you say, these rather boutique energy sources where we know that there's high heat, there's high flow of water, we know we can tap them. And we have tapped a lot of those. And, you know, we have about three hundreds of megawatts to gigawatt plants in the U.S. And we have a whole bunch of 20 or so megawatts or so that have largely geared towards tapping these resources. But as you say, you know, the color band hardly shows on the energy portfolio for the U.S. from that. It's just a few percent. Uh, of the entire energy portfolio, but to me, a lot of that—the way w- that particular aspect—that's kind of like the old days in petroleum, looking for seeps to drill. You're going for the very easy targets very early on in the game, where that you know that there's rich and high potential. But as we're learning more about geothermal, uh, we're learning that there's a lot more of it out there we can tap. So the next move has been towards what's called hot, hot, dry rocks. Where that we know that the heat is down there. If you just drill deep enough, and there's loads of heat energy down there. Uh, matter of fact, the you know the Earth emits waste at least twice the geothermal energy into space that the planet uses in energy total. So we know that there's plenty of heat down there to work with. The thing is, is that uh, there's no porosity down there in those hot dry rocks. You're down into the basement rocks. So the idea is you drill down. You frack it, you create the porosity, and then you pump the water through it to harvest the heat. And one day that's going to work. But we've worked on it, we worked on it, and we're still working on it. But it, we haven't quite got the fracture patterns and the flow patterns down to where we can where we can make those work consistently. And so, in the meantime, while we're playing with that one, what my proposal was is that we should be looking in sedimentary basins where we already have the porosity. And as you point out, Nick, where we already have lots of experience and we know how flow works and we know how to get flow from point A to point B and we know how to pump water in and out and drill. So we know sedimentary basins pretty well and we know we've got the core aspects that we need from them. So the idea is let's try sedimentary basins for a while. There's a lot of heat resource there too, enough to you know an, enough to run the country for a thousand uh, enough to run the country for a thousand years if you could actually get it. The problem is is it's low heat and it's dispersed. So the biggest challenge we have with sedimentary basins is that uh, the heat is a little lower, and so we have to actually be able to harvest heat from lower heats lower heat sources with higher volumes of water. So That means that our challenges are that we're just now getting to the place where we have the technology to pull that off. But we have evolved the technology with new Rankin engines and so forth. We have the capacity to be able to do a lot more than we used to. So this in itself is getting profitable. But the real challenge there is efficiency. How do you take a heat source that's lower, but get it more efficiently out of the ground, get it more efficiently turned into electricity at more efficient costs. Once you can crack that egg, we have no shortage of eggs.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that you're bringing up a good point of, I think, you know, that is one of the obviously upfront costs are a huge hurdle for geothermal, but also it is the, the efficiencies uh, when you look at other, you know, energy sources, you know, what in terms of what temperature they run at or operate at. Uh, in order to even achieve a decent efficiency, and then you compare that to the hundred degree to two hundred and twenty five C temperatures of the low, lower to mid enthalpy geothermal, and that which is what, like you say, where a lot of the resource lies in the sedimentary basin. You know, minus a few areas that have you know, you know, hotter rock, or even a, I mean, of course, if you go deeper, you can you can get even hotter. But that's that's the next hump of technology is to get to that you know, sort of 30,000 foot depth uh, economically. But even just in that low to mid enthalpy, you know, some of the things that I've read about or heard that have been really fascinating to me is the idea of, you know, like you said, there are, you know, updates in the Rankin cycle, you know, know, turbines, but also the idea of using different working fluids, you know, in, in terms of, you know, this would have to be a closed loop scenario, obviously. So you're not sending, you know, stuff through the, the reservoir but in that in that type of scenario you know that i think that is one thing that will help the efficiencies of the plants uh, especially with you know using a working fluid that has a higher enthalpy and ability to conduct more heat than maybe say just water um and so you know i guess that's you brought it up but you know expounding more on just your work in the you know, the, not super detailed, but the calculations of, you know, how extracting heat exactly work, you know, is there a certain amount of time it needs to, you know, the resonance time down hole, is there a, a mass flow rate you need, or is it, you know, what is, what are some of those key characteristics that you need to get from, you know, a geothermal low to mid enthalpy resource in order to make it worthwhile? Because, you know, on gas, obviously it's barrels per day, we're dealing in a different scenario, but they're. There's an economic hurdle, right? When we're running our, our models, you don't, you can't just produce one barrel a day and say that's, that's enough. You know, what, what is that, that heat that, you know, what are some of those parameters that we need?
1: Yeah. And, and of course, as I, as I like to point out, there's about, there's three different ways you, at least I should say, at least three different ways you can think of this. One of them is let's figure out how to harvest that heat more efficiently. And get it cheaper and get it more efficiently and be able to get across those hurdles where more and more basins open up as profit centers, which of course we saw that happen with oil and gas with different recovery scenarios and different drilling scenarios. We produce things that never would have been profitable before, find things that never would have been profitable before. Geothermal obviously needs that same evolution. Because you are talking about harvesting lower heat from broader areas with, and you need systems that can do that more efficiently and cheaper. So that's a bit of a hurdle. We're working on it. The other two avenues to look at that, though, is instead of just looking at it from the point of view of let's just produce what's there and for electricity, it's like, well, let's just produce it for its own sake. You can space heat with this water. It's already at the temperatures that you need to do something on the order of a quarter of what we spend electrons doing, just heating and cooling buildings and just heating and cooling water and simple things like that where the temperatures are already there. You skip the whole step of turning electricity, it cuts out that efficiency problem. you immediately just use the water, so that's another route that you can go that's got lots of potential and uh and again, I always like to say it's electron saved and it's electron earned. If you aren't using that power for if you are using that heated water to get done the things you're otherwise using electricity for, you've taken that power need off of the grid. And of course, the third thing that I'm really excited about that is the more how you say, the more dreamer kind of approach, yeah. that has the potential to actually be the complete game changer is using the subsurface as an energy storage system, the earth battery idea, whereby that you're actually saying, I'm going to take a lot of this heat that's coming when I don't want it from solar and so forth, and put it in the ground as geothermal and then pull it out when I want it as base load. So I'm really excited about this possibility Of coupling things like solar and geothermal into central plants and ending up getting a stable, efficient baseload system that can produce power at 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 levels that we actually uh, for which we can control the scales.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's an extremely exciting you know piece of it, and I think that's a huge emphasis that needs to be placed on on this. Is that you know this isn't an effort to go out and replace anything or become the the only thing that exists, this is just a simple taking advantage of this amazing, sustainable, clean resource that's baseload. And then also, you know, like you said, coupling it with what's already out there to become the most efficient we can and how we produce and also use our energy for whatever needs there are and you know you bring up the the heating and cooling and that that accounts for i think it is a quarter or more of you know our electricity usage is is heating and cooling and then you talk about refrigeration and all these things that take immense amounts of electricity uh to power which like you said is a very inefficient process at the end of the day so why not take advantage of some of the localized use of just directly pulling it out and sending it straight through a pipeline into to buildings or into agricultural purposes or fisheries or, or whatever means you need to use. Like you said, you remove that and it helps you kind of better predict or more evenly predict the energy needs um, seasonally and yearly, which I think is a huge win also for, for grids. As we saw in, in Texas this last winter we had the great freeze and I you know I think that kind of opened some eyes um you know I think there was a lot of finger pointing and stuff which was maybe not necessarily needed but I think it's the it's just this idea that we need to become better at forecasting and and knowing where our energy will come from Um, oh
1: absolutely and and of course one thing about snow is we Affectionately call it, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: is yeah, is that uh, is before that it was me and a handful of other people who actually knew Texas had its own grid. Now everybody does, yeah, exactly. so, so yeah. nothing educates like a catastrophe,
0: yeah. It's, uh, you take advantage of those terrible times to be like, you know, and, and in re- all reality, it's you know, it was, it was a crazy time for us, but you know, the reality is that people lost their life, um, they did. and and that's something that I think can be prevented, uh, and I think we we just have to realize that you know when you go for the cheapest cost of electricity, or or you, you do things a certain way, or just your predictions because you're leaning on certain sources, or just you know you, you need to have a better predictability and in a in a more just level grid where you know that you're going to have power when it's when it's needed. Um and that's what right. better way and, than and turning on geothermal?
1: Yes, and you know it's also one of those things where it, it's a normal thing for people to design for the place that they live. For instance, I mean, I yeah. worked in Nigeria for a while. I'd watch them make concrete blocks, and then they would like mix sand and like one part and seven concrete and actually <laughs> make concrete blocks and build buildings on. And somebody's looking and says, well, "Well, well, wait, what if it freezes?" You're like you're in equatorial africa <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> they don't worry about that there yeah. so that works it never work here yeah but that said though it's like we have these high five overpasses you know if you were no- further north where it snowed and iced all the time uh, that would shut down this city for half the winter yeah so you 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 do those and of course what happened was people forget uh, forgot that we have big storms once in a while and they didn't have all everything hardened appropriately for the cold like they would just you know just 500 miles to the north yeah so it caught us so there's things like that that uh, that you do learn as you go along uh but one thing that it does teach you is have a diverse if you're going to have your own grid make sure it's a highly diversified grid so that something works
0: yeah that you can depend you can turn something on or or account for the loss of something in a in a you know time that you know, that we need it in a situation like that. Um, And, you know, it it goes back to that idea that you brought up, which is the, you know, using the earth as a storage or as a battery in, in sense, uh, you know, and, and I think that's a really cool idea that I kind of want to just, I know it's like you said, it's a, a dreamer or maybe just a, it is a lofty shoot for the stars and hopefully we land on the moon. But I think that's how this whole arena of, of energy sources, even just with, the batteries that are out there today storing the energy from wind and solar, you know, those, those are things that are being created overnight. I mean, these are really, really breakthrough technologies. So, you know, what's to say we can't use uh, the subsurface. And so kind of just want to touch on, you know, what that looks like, I think from, you know, to give the audience more, you know, idea of how you use the earth as a battery, coupling it with uh, solar, like what would, you know, what generally what would that process look like from a, trying to store energy when, when you need it to be a baseload.
1: Absolutely. And the idea itself is fairly simple, is thermal, thermal solar, especially these cer- central tower thermal solars, can generate temperatures in the several hundred degrees Celsius range. So there's no shortage of energy. It's just that, of course, it comes when the sun is shining and we tend to burn mo- use most of our electricity when the sun isn't shining. So so the electric grid as it, is a pre- as it is presently designed is like a river that flows by from which you pull a ladle of power out whenever you want it. But the flow has to be constant no matter what, which means you're pushing flow in one end, you're pulling it out along the way, but the flow must remain steady at all times. So energy sources that come intermittently All have to be compensated by some other energy source that will keep the energy flow steady when those energy sources drop, which, of course, means during the middle of the day when the sun's come up and you're using solar, that means that somewhere in the evenings you have to flip on some kind of other energy source in order to maintain the difference if you're going to keep the flow steady. And the entire country, and especially this new information economy we've designed, completely is dependent on a steady flow of energy without major fluctuation. So that's our problem. So the idea here is simple, is, is that we know in geothermal, you're pulling hot water out of the ground, you're running it through a turbine, and you're pumping, you're letting it cool and you're pumping it back into the aquifer after you've, ex- you've extracted all the energy you can out of that heat. So the idea here is simple. Before you push it back into the ground, you take that solar that you're not otherwise able to use on the grid, and then you take that extra solar capacity and use it to heat the water. And you now push hot water back into the ground. And so instead of pushing cold water into the ground that cools the aquifer, that has to be reheated by the aquifer, you heat the water back up. So there's a couple ways to think of that. One of them is just sustainability. Simply say, I know my temperature is okay for geothermal. It's kind of marginal, but I'm running, making electricity just as happy as a clam here at 150 degrees seawater, 120 degrees seawater, whatever. And I just know that I just want to keep doing that for 100 years from now or whatever. I want a system that's always sustainable. So if I just heat the water back up to temperatures close to what I took out, the aquifer stays stable. And so, and I keep in business. The other option is to say, no, I could take water that's not quite where I want it, but it's closed or water that's hot, but I'd like it to be hotter and I can heat the water above the aquifer temperature and pump that water in. And so what you're doing now is you're actually pumping heated water into the ground with the idea of I will extract it As I do my geothermal and I will pull that heat out later when I need it because geothermal can be turned on, turned off, scaled up, scaled down. It can run constantly. So if you're storing the solar heat energy in the ground during the day when you have too much of it, the idea is you can extract it in the evenings when you need that heat and you end up with solar baseload. So the problems, of course, are efficiency. How much can how much heat are you going to lose in the aquifer? How much heat how much heat am I pushing in? How much am I pulling out? So there's different scenarios that have run, but to encourage and nobody has tried this yet. Uh we have we do not have I mean, people have pumped steam into the ground, that's for sure. Yeah. But trying to actually say, let's run a geothermal system by solar storage, we haven't given that a try yet. We've done models though, and there are models that are well, they're largely at this point what we call huff and puffs. You pump water in one well and back out the same one, so you're not worried about moving it across the aquifer, just out into the aquifer and back. But those systems, after about thirty cycles, hundred cycles, they're pulling out clo- close to the a hundred, pull up close to hundred percent of the heat you've put in. You're able to actually get it back out. So there are models that suggest this could work. It's encouraging. And like I say, here's the real key thing about this is when it comes to energy, we have two fundamental issues that we need to think about. One, we need to keep our own grid alive and stable. We need power. We need power that doesn't pollute. And we need power that's gonna be sustainable and diversified and something that we know we can depend on no matter what. So where geothermal comes in, Is immediately helping us there in the grid. But then there's the larger world CO2 problem. And so in for, and right now, if you look around the world, there's a big switch that the world depends on that's running on fossil fuels. And it's close to three quarters of that of the energy this, this, this world is using is one type of fossil fuel or the other. And if you're going to flip that switch down, you better have one you can flip up that does the same thing. And so the world needs some kind of a solution. If you're going to solve the CO2 problem and move us as a world away from fossil fuels and keep, and keep the CO2 out of our shared atmosphere, you need to come up with energy solutions that the world that's actually using fossil fuels can actually exchange and apply. So The idea here is simple. Everybody's got sunshine. Almost everybody has a sedimentary basin. If you can get this to work efficiently and cost-effective, it's something that actually could be done across the globe. And that is something that realistically is one of a list of possible things that realistically could address this broader CO2 problem in real tangible ways.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And, and a hundred percent the way that it needs to be, you know, viewed is, is trying to work towards a solution rather than just talking about the problems or, or the, you know, the bad mouthing one industry. It's just about, well, let's go out and actually solve the problems and work towards, towards that goal as a, as an, as a world, uh, instead of, you know, focusing on the negatives or things such as that. And, and, you know, I think that's, that's key. And, and I want to, Touch on that. Well, at least it just popped in my head. I don't know if you'll have any ideas on it or not, but the idea of, you know, I've heard from, you know, some of the companies in terms of doing, who are going to do direct use and sending it through a pipeline of sorts to within a certain distance so you don't lose too much heat. But I guess in that respect, I've always just been curious because obviously oil and gas, you know, we can transport around the world because the properties of it, you know, don't really. It doesn't change in a boat on a you know pipeline. It's, it's, it is what it is when you're delivering it to the post-refining to whoever the customer is. But geothermal, obviously, it's heat you're transporting. And yep. you know, we know that that doesn't just stay constant. If you're putting it in a pipeline for 20 miles, it's going to become cooler. So I guess that idea of, you know, there's probably ways, or at least I've heard of ways, that you can sort of spike that heat along the pipeline. And so I guess one of those we could even... Back to this conversation of coupling it with solar, I guess in theory you could even spike that heat along a pipeline if that was something that you wanted to to, you know, think about in terms of transporting your your heat to a distance that maybe you
1: never thought you could. No, and absolutely. And and that in very in different sort of scenarios has is actually being done. But a lot of it is like thermal plants where they're they're heat using solar to spike the heat of their geothermal water as after it's come out of the ground. And so uh, water has an extremely high heat capacity. So yeah. if you can get it hot, it doesn't cool fast, but it does cool. So um, you're right. There is sort of a distance limitation for heat. Uh, and the further you have to pump it and the more it cools, the less it's worth. So one of the things in terms of municipal type heat is obviously you know, you want to be talking about pumping heat to areas that are not far away, but you know, there's a couple ways to look at that. I think part of it is just a different mindset, because as you say, in the oil industry, we like to think of big offshore rigs where we're pumping, you know, where we're, you know, we're pumping fifty thousand barrels out of a, a day out of a field and putting it on tankers and sending around the world, but. Uh, with a lot of this kind of space heat approach, it's more like I've got a little town and I'm got and I can set up a couple wells and I can supply that little town. And then I'll have another town. I'll set up a couple little wells and supply people in that town. Or it's a neighborhood and I and we've got a co-op going and we're and we're all or we've bought heat from some supplier and we've piped into geothermal we're all running our heat pumps off of it and it's a different sort of a game uh the other side of it is is that clearly big industry could do that but it's also one of those things i think that i i have a soft spot for small business people and this is definitely the kind of thing where small operators can really make a go of it on that a local town has an operator who has a few wells and supplies hot water to hot water to to reach to areas close by. And so there's a whole lot of possibilities there and let's face it. Uh the average person needs something to do. They need to make a, they need to have some way of making a living. And so if you can come up with that and actually get it that's a bonus.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a huge piece that I think when we're talking about the scalability and just the global scale of geothermal, it it truly is global. And I think when you put it in that light, you really get start to see the picture of how many people really it can employ and help. You know, it doesn't look the same, like you said, as oil and gas. And it won't be these, you know, we don't know. I don't know this, but it won't be just like four majors that are operating everything. You know, I think there's a lot of space and even the startups I talked to, they The startups, you know, the founders of those are saying we need more. They're like, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of us starting right now, but we still need more. And that to me is encouraging to see, you know, this isn't about those few just wanting to become the mainstay that takes over everything. They're simply saying, look, this is a huge opportunity with more land and space to cover than any one or two companies can do in a reasonable amount of time that's needed, right? This is something yeah. that needs to be solved or, or arrived at in the next, truly like next decade to really become something that can can help, you know, offset and help us reach net zero goals. It needs to be, like you said, there's there was an announcement last week by Sage Geosystems about being able to power Ellington Field, doing a feasibility study of powering Ellington Field with geothermal. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, amazing to see because here you have these microgrid scenarios where you have infrastructure that can't afford to depend on the the regular grid that could go down they want to have something that can be reliable in the sense of when it is the freeze comes or when a hurricane hits yep. or whatever happens that they know hey I'm a hospital I'm a you know data center I'm a I'm a whatever it is that is a very pertinent thing to stay online they are going to need Um, energy. And what better way than drilling one or two, three to five megawatt wells that just power that local area. And so I think that's huge in in terms of eliminating, you know, also eliminates the distance of transmission, right? You don't have to lay lines from the grid to, you know, you said you grew up in the small town. I mean, imagine the the amount of distance that they have to run those power lines uh, to reach places. But you know geothermal you could build these plants you know locally and and i think that's what's good about that is that the footprint the surface footprint is way smaller than uh people realize i think to put a geothermal surface facility in is nothing compared to a wind farm or a solar farm or even an oil and gas operation
1: absolutely and that is that is one of those things where i know that the majors are looking looking at geothermal and I really want to cheerlead for them because that's uh you know, they, they've got the expertise and they've got a lot of opportunities and they can make a lot of breakthroughs. But realistically, I, I, I do like the idea that there's so much in geothermal that can be done by small operations and a whole bunch of small operations can get the, get a big job done.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think the corporations, like you said, will be key, and they'll be key in the equation regardless, because they do have the expertise, the assets, the resources, and so I think regardless, they still have to be on the front lines of the innovation and and pushing the the limits and the boundaries on what what our future energy you know lo- system looks like and diversifying that. And so it's it's great to see. Companies like Chevron and even Adoxy having these venture type businesses underneath their business that go out and simply invest in companies that are looking at hydrogen and biomass and lithium extraction from which is another aspect of geothermal that I think is fascinating. But they, they're they're creating these avenues where they're actually putting their money, you know, where their mouth is of saying, "Hey, we're we have these targets and these aggressive goals to hit net zero by." 2050. Uh, how do we do that? And, you know, maybe as a corporation, you don't do everything, but, but by creating that venture group that can go out and and invest in companies and support and, you know, cheerlead and sit on their boards. I think, like you said, that's a huge piece that I think will be, you know, very key in catalyzing this, this sort of, Growth in other energy sources
1: absolutely, and I think you touched on something that's important too that is one of the big moving parts of this. I think back on my I, uh, back on my undergrad days and I had this uh I had this uh uh old timey ore deposits professor from the Indiana Jones days of ore exploration, and uh he was uh, Dennison he was a hoop. But, you know, the thing is, I, one thing he said that stuck in my mind is nobody nobody opens a gold mine. Uh, I, you know, you, in other words, most all the gold that was mined wasn't built there just to simply say we're mining gold. They mine copper. They mine nickel. and Then gold's just the profit. Yeah. And so with a lot of geothermal systems, what you're producing is a whole lot of water anyway but you're after oil and gas, or you're after lithium, or you're doing a CO2 sequestration project, but you're producing a lot of water, you know, why not make use of it? You can sell that stuff. You know, you can harvest the heat from it. And, you know, and the other side of it too, that doesn't get a lot of, uh, doesn't get a lot of play is we have a real serious, serious need for fresh water in this country. Yeah. It's going to get worse and worse. And when you're producing the water, well, it's brine, but if you're heating it enough to flash, steam it, or you're generating enough power to do, uh, do reverse osmosis, you have the ability to clean that water up. And so yeah. there's, there's a market for fresh water.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the you know, I think that's the beauty. And that goes, that goes to all the, the innovation that's happening in this energy space, but it's just viewing it by saying that nothing here is wasted. You know, I think we've too, too often, you know, we think of things as, as waste products of, you yeah. know, energy production, because that's, but that's, that's what it's been because, right, you said you're after one thing that makes the money and the rest of it, it's just kind of an inconvenience that, you just need to find a way to either flare that gas like we do or just dispose the water deep down somewhere and forget about it. You know, it's, it's a, it's to cut costs, which to some degree, I know you have, we have to make money. And, and so yep. it's, it is a conflict of, okay, well, how, what level can we, but you know, there's companies out there who have now taken flare gas and turned it into electricity to use on location. So it's just these ideas that aren't, you know, they're not, groundbreaking it's just simply saying hey well instead of looking at this as a waste product let's think about and we do it now and you know at at oxy even just with cleaning our water in ways we never did before and so you're thinking like well hey you know that's a that's a pretty like massive opportunity and resource that can be you know used if you calculate how many barrels we dispose of every year or produce i mean it's probably more than i can even you know, fathom at this point. So, oh, yeah. Well,
1: I mean, picture a scenario where that you're pulling water out of the ground. It's say 120 C, kind of a typical kind of deep oil, pro, deep oil play. And you're, uh, and here it comes. You've separated the water. It's still 100 something C. And you got all this waste gas. Take the gas, heat the water, run it through a turbine you know, then you've, you know, you've taken care of your waste gas, you've generated electricity. And if you played it smart, you probably have, you will have water that's not going to be as costly to dispose of.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, that's the exciting thing to me in terms of the horizon of just the energy industry is the fact that I think we're going to see a lot of this sort of, I wouldn't even call it out of the box thinking because it is kind of you know, straightforward when you actually pull back and, and look at what we have. But I think just seeing seeing what comes about in the next five to seven and even you know ten years, I think uh, the landscape's going to be pretty cool to see. Just what people are doing uh, and what companies are, are doing differently, and just like you said, what small operators are coming coming out and and becoming. You know, I'll use the word major players, but in terms of just they are becoming a foothold in terms of, you know, geothermal, uh, whatever that looks like for their model. There's a bunch of models out there, but I think, um, it's going to be exciting and I'm, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and I'm glad that we got to talk about it today and spend some time, you know, nerding out about it and in my opinion, but I think it does deserve, um, you know, more, more attention and, and more time spent on just because, you know, what you see in most of the News or media regarding renewables is really just uh, wind and solar, or we're talking about fission or or nuclear, and and those things are they're they're there and and they are good, but I think they have a little bit longer road ahead of them, just in terms of regulatory and and just more research. But it you know geothermal kind of gets hopped over, kind of gets just sort of forgotten about, um, and so I think it's it's going to be exciting to see when we start having some of these these successes come online that that people start to take it seriously. Um, but before we close, I kind of just want to rapid fire a few questions off at you to leave with our our listeners. So the first one I'll I'll start with is um I think just just overall, um, you know, obviously as you've jumped around and gotten to see a lot of things in your time of research and and as you've been a professor, you know, what what are some of the what's a piece of advice that you would give a Young or just, let's say, a college student or even a, you know, young student interested in, you know, the engineering or that petroleum realm or just the energy space in general. Um, you know, what What would you because I've, I've just met a lot of them that are feeling discouraged uh, in this time frame. But, I, you know, when I look at it, I see immense opportunity and an immense need for geoscientists and engineers. And so, you know, what what one piece of advice would you give an early career or, or a young you know, students studying in that
1: space? Well, I think the first thing I would say is look at the past 50 years and what has changed in this world, in this society. What in the world makes you think the next 50 years are going to be less noisy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. what you think is absurd today will be normal tomorrow. So, yeah. the best you can do. Is write it and keep your eyes open because things that you probably are dismissing now will be the cornerstones of society in the future.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, I guess. And then, well, segue into the next one. What? A, what's one of the your favorite, you know, research projects or things you've gotten to do in your in your career, or just one of the favorite locations that you've gotten to to work or spend time in?
1: Well, I got to confess, I have itchy feet. You know, I'm Daniel Boone's <laughs> third cousin.
0: <Okay. laughs>
1: really, yeah. But uh, so when I'm asked where's the favorite place that I have worked or where I've been, it's the place I haven't done yet.
0: Hey, that's a good, hey, that's, I, I love that because that's kind of, I am similar in the sense that I'm I'm always excited about the next journey or the next place that life will take me. Uh, and then, last one we'll we'll jump on is uh, a book recommendation for the listeners. It doesn't have to be anything related to what we've talked about, but just in general, one that you've read in the last year, or could be your your lifetime
1: favorite. What's a recommendation? Well, you got a you got a tough one for me right there. Uh, I I don't really have a good answer for you. Everything I see to read seems to be uh, seems to be something. Uh, very specific yeah uh that is uh, largely technical so i guess i would say that my answer to that uh, to that one would be that uh just keep reading yeah i'm not uh. going to tell you a specific one because my biggest concern right now is is that we get wrapped up in people's opinions and yeah. we keep th- we quit thinking broadly so i would say that I would say the thing, rather than saying a particular book or anything, what I would say is keep asking questions and no, then great. go find the answers. There are books that have the answers.
0: Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. Yeah. Reading is a. I, I don't think I really appreciated all that reading can do for you until I really started doing more after I graduated college. Um, it's just, uh, there's a wealth of knowledge out there and a wealth of viewpoints that you can really learn from. So that's great. Um. Well, I want to thank you again, John, for coming on today and and thank all of you for listening that are out there, wherever it is that you may be listening. I hope that you're having a wonderful day and learned something as I did about just geothermal and and what it can offer us in the future and just the many different facets it has and just the exciting space and the exciting decade we're in for geothermal. Um, And so... Hope you guys enjoyed it and tune in next time for another exciting episode. But until then, have a wonderful day. Thank you and see you next time.